Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network's brand new Caribbean Studies channel. I'm Alejandra Bronfman, and today I'll be speaking with Ada Ferrer, author of Freedom's Mirror, Cuba and Haiti in the Age of Revolution, just out with Cambridge University Press. When the Haitian Revolution destroyed slavery in Haiti, it spurred the intensification of slavery in Cuba, just a short distance across the water. Freedom's Mirror tacks back and forth between Cuba and Haiti and renders this paradox in concrete and vivid terms. As people, information, ships, and objects traveled between these two places, they inhabited a Caribbean space in which slavery, anti-slavery, imperialism, and sovereignty were in constant and intimate tension. Ada Ferrer's book immerses readers in this moment with stories of unlikely alliances, fear, greed, and idealism. It is beautifully written and a really impressive example of history that shifts among sweeping geopolitical processes and on-the-ground stories of individuals and their trajectories. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Ada, welcome, and thanks so much for speaking with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Can we start out with you talking about your trajectory as a historian and how you came to this specific project? Sure. Well, sometimes I feel like I came to history a little bit late. I started out as an English major and then decided I wanted to keep going to school and did a master's in in history. I knew always, once I had started history in graduate school, that I wanted to work on Cuba in part for personal reasons, having been born there and not ever having traveled there at that point. Um, so I started working on, on, on Cuban history and um, went to the University of Michigan to work with Rebecca Scott, uh, who had a big influence on me, worked there with people like Krishmit Noir, who passed away just this week, uh, very sad. And uh, I got interested in questions of slavery and emancipation. I did my first book, as you know, on the Cuban Wars of Independence and the participation of former slaves. And while I was working on that project, I kept coming up against the the specter of Haiti, the comparisons that the Spanish state and opponents of independence made between any attempt at Cuban independence in which people of color participated and uh, a particular version of the Haitian Revolution. So I became interested in the question of what of what people in Cuba actually knew about the Haitian Revolution and how information circulated and what meaning it had it had in Cuba. So that's kind of how I I started on uh, on the project. Thanks. Um, you, you know, it's really interesting that the at the heart of your of your book is the tension between the, the destruction of slavery in Haiti and the emergence of a very powerful slave society in Cuba. And it's been an accepted trope in Caribbean historiography for such a long time, right? But it's this kind of unexamined trope. We always say that together in lectures, but nobody has really taken the time to sort of uncover and the, the processes by which that happened and all of those connections. So I'm wondering right. how you how, how did you come to realize that those two stories needed to be told together? Yeah, well, again, that was that was also a kind of gradual process when I started the the project, and I did my first research trip for the for Freedom's Mirror in in fall of 1998, I believe, so a long time ago, and I really was just focused then on the question of information and circulation of of news of Haiti, more along the lines of kind of a Julius Scott common wind analysis. And the more I began to work on it, I realized that, of course, this news is circulating at the moment that Cuban slavery is being transformed. 
right? The, the number of, of captives arriving are, are growing, the number of mills being established. So there was this coincidence in time that, uh, that was clearly important. And then I thought, well, that has to affect then the way the circulation of, of information happens and the meanings that people attach to it. So I kind of, so I didn't foresee that question initially being so important, but it gradually seemed to me to be, you know, of, of utmost uh, importance, right? That if, if, if people are hearing about Haiti at the same moment that the, the landscape of, of slavery is being transformed in the country that has to shape the way they think about a slave revolution and has to, the slave revolution then has to shape the way they think about slavery. So it, that, that became the dynamic at the, at the center of the book. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I want to talk about this question of information and media in just a minute. But first, I want to um, just ask you a couple of questions about the more broad, the broader framing. And one is actually, why do you think that this story hasn't been told? Because once you read your book, it makes so much sense to tell them together. It's as if you can't tell them without one another. But, um, but, but nobody has has really done this before. And do, do you have a sense of why that that's the case? Yeah, well, you know, I think people have done, you know, bits and pieces of it. So I think someone, a Cuban historian like José Luciano Franco, for him, the Haitian Revolution is, is critical. Um, I think for, you know, Matt Childs working on a Aponte, he obviously knew about the importance of the Haitian Revolution. But in some sense, the, the central question for each of them and for other people who worked around these kinds of topics, uh, the the question, the central question has been another one, and I just made the question specifically the link, and maybe the moment made that more possible, the fact that 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 national history has given way to more kind of transnational uh, framing, maybe that made it more possible in this moment, uh, perhaps. Uh, and also, I think, you know, I remember uh, I was a, 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 when I was at Michigan, Robin Kelly was there as a professor, and then he became my colleague here at NYU, and he always used to talk about, um, you know, follow the people, follow the money, and I think, in some sense, again, even though I knew I, the project was going to be Cuba and Haiti, the extent to which it would be about the connection also wasn't clear at the end. I mean, this could have been a, a purely Cuban book. I think it's more Cuban than, than Haitian as it is, but it could have been a purely Cuban book just on the circulation of of an idea of Haiti or ideas of Haiti in Cuba. But then once I got in the archive and just started following the sources out, I, I had to go out. And I, and I allowed myself to go out in part because that kind of framing has become so much more important in recent years. Uh, so I think in a sense, like some people have done things around it, but then uh, to make the connection itself central, no one had done. And I think, it, it, again, partly it's the, the, the moment that makes it possible and... Um, and yeah. this, this notion of um, following the people and the money, which is really clearly very important to you in the book and which we, you do really wonderfully, I'm wondering how uh, that creates new problems for you, right? Because it, it, it makes it much more difficult, I think, to shape a kind of narrative that has the kind of flow that it actually does. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how the kinds of decisions that you make made to shape that narrative and... Um, how you manage to follow people back and forth and, and tell one big overarching story, which is really impressive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, 
it's such a process writing, researching and writing a book, right? Um, so it's not like one makes a decision to do that. Initially, it kind of evolves organically, I think. And then in terms of following specific people, so for, can I, I'll just, I'll, I'll speak from one of the chapters if that's okay. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> if you take, if you take, you know, chapter three, which is on um, the period of the war between France and Spain on the border between Santo Domingo and San Domingue, right? I never would have foreseen that one of the chapters would, uh, would unfold primarily in Santo Domingo. I hadn't thought that at the outset. But as I was in the archive looking for when people in Cuba were talking about the revolution, one of the key moments was that, right? In 1793, all these Cuban soldiers went to, to Santo Domingo to fight uh, with black rebels against the French Republic. So, so I followed these Cubans to Santo Domingo and to the border, right? And again, they, you know, so that became a really important episode because then the more, then the more, then I said, okay, I have to find out more about these people, right? And you start researching these individuals who went, and you realize, well, some of them are slave owners, some of them are sugar plantation owners, and they're in Santa Mang, and they're, you know, and they're allied with these former slaves. Rebels, and then I followed them back to Cuba, and so I just, I just kind of, when the art, you, you know, so you have the question, you think, can can I take this somewhere? And you kind of get a little obsessed with it, and you look for them everywhere you go, and you go to places just to look for them, right? And so, you know, so you go to Segovia to see if you could find their their military uh, file, and you go to a little town in the middle of nowhere near Ciudad Real to see if you could find information, right? So you kind of, and sometimes the archive co- cooperates and sometimes it doesn't. And and then also when you've worked on a project for this long, sometimes you don't know that you have something that you have, right? So you're, you're doing something towards the end and you're telling a story and you think, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. And you look at all your notes and you find something incredibly important about that person that you didn't even know you had that you found 10 years earlier, right? <laughs> right. So, so that's what I'm saying. It, it wasn't always a conscious intention. It's just kind of, I think it, 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 it happened as a result of, well, doing the archival research for so long uh, in, in different places and then you know, and then looking for people and looking for stories and trying to link them up. I don't know if that's a, a very clear answer. It's just by no, process, I guess. It is, actually. And uh, one of the things that I noticed also is that you follow you follow people, but you also follow information. And there's this notion of the importance of, I guess this is where the project started, right? And yeah. the importance of media and information. And the way, also, I really like the way you kind of, broadened media to include ships and also to include people right who are yeah. carriers of information so that um right that's really yeah. uh that's that it makes a really important point i think um yeah but, but i wanted to ask you a little bit more about this chapter three because i found that just so confounding in some ways right this description of the alliances between the black auxiliaries and the re- representatives of the spanish many of whom are slaveholders who are fighting supposedly for the same side, but then also some of the slave, some of the black auxiliaries are selling people. Um, and yeah, <laughs> um, right. I, that, I just, I, maybe you can talk a little bit about, about that whole scene and how it worked and 
my question really is, do you think this was as confusing on the ground for the people who were in it as it as it seems as it seemed to me? I don't know if it, if it was confusing to you at first, but it was just so mind blowing all of the things that were going on there. Yeah. So, you know, I, actually, I love that chapter, and again, it's one that I hadn't foreseen at the beginning. In partly, in part, because I didn't know about this. Right? We all mm-hmm. know that during the Haitian Revolution, the the Spanish allied with the Haitian. Uh, rebels with the, the black rebels from the revolution. Mm-hmm. So that's that's like that's a critical chapter in the story of the of the Haitian revolution. And we know from other sources that some of the troops had come from 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 Cuba. Sherry Johnson mentions that briefly, for instance. Um, but I just had no idea about the extent of the contact until I started working with these, uh, with these sources from, from Simancas. And then you hear about, you know, the dinners, you hear about the dances, you hear the, the Marques de Casacalvo, right, a sugar plantation owner who became godfather to Jean-Francois, right? So these are, these are links that are, that are um, clearly vital and important. And it just helps us think about, the meaning of Haiti for Cuba in a completely different way. We're so used to thinking that, well, in Cuba, the elite was so scared of the Haitian Revolution that they could never imagine independence, right? And that's a that's a common trope. I, I used it in my first book. We all use it, right? Mm-hmm. But, but then you think, okay, actually, there's a small part of that elite that was actually in the Haitian Revolution, and they knew Toussaint, and they negotiated with Jean-Francois, and they had this, this very uh, important... Uh, contact with them. This wasn't actually fear. It was, it was, um, it was much more pragmatic than that, right? They always thought mm-hmm. that they stole it, and so anyway, so the, it, it provides like a new lens into that that old question about fear. Um, but then also, I mean, as as you say, you don't know the, the Cubans were completely confused. Here they are, uh, and they're allied with these rebels who they've been hearing about as murderers and rapists and these are their allies, these are their people they're working with. So you know and, and the letters from the from Matias Admona, who was the first commander, he's completely uh, confused. Right? And then I think for the the black rebels the the same was true, right? That these the Spanish were promising them all kinds of things, but then they were inviting back white planters and the white planters were kind of intimating that they would re enslave people, right? So I think it's a really uh, un, you know, uncertain, tense, uh, loaded encounter on on all sides, and um, I was going to say something else about that, and it just slipped my mind. But yes, I do think. Oh, the other thing is that. So I thought that that in that chapter you get the sense of of Cuba going to the Haitian Revolution, right? So there, if you think about the memory and the knowledge of Haiti and Cuba, it's not just this, like, third-hand rumor. These people were actually there and witnessed it and knew some of the people and were participants in it in some sense, right? So it clearly shifts what we know about Cuba's understanding of the Haitian, Cuban understandings of the Haitian Revolution. But I think it also maybe points to the ways in which the fact that Cuba was so close and the fact that Cuba was a growing slave system also impacted the Haitian Revolution itself, right? That Tucson is making decisions about who to ally with, in part by observing the behavior and the actions of these Cuban men 
who are his allies and commanders and who are also slave owners and purchasing people and doing all kinds of things like that, right? So that also affects the the the, the you know the, the the history of the Haitian Revolution itself. Yeah, the 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 way that you really get at the concrete way in which those two are not just like you say, not just hearing about it or not just kind of random, vague rumors, but actually interacting with people and actually shaping each other's processes is really fascinating. And I loved actually in that chapter the bit about the traffic of objects, right? So there's this kind right. of sugar equipment that gets sold because it's no longer useful and people right. are just right. picking up stuff as if it were on eBay or something. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yes. that, that stuff it's is cu- cu- Cubans involved in illicit business it's a long long history mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> just... humans yes <laughs> trading back and forth but then um, but then that that uh, all sort of comes to an end right when Toussaint switches loyalty and one of the stories again here is this um, the the very complicated as I guess um uh, the war within a war, as as um, Real Trio Trio, um, Trio would um, would would describe it, right? There's all of this stuff going back and forth, and these switching loyalties, and right, it's astonishing. Yes, uh, but you like that one, yeah. Um, but then at the same time, and you move on um, to this to the um, the effect actually of knowledge about Toussaint in in Cuba and the very negative uh, kind of um, uh, ideas about him that eventually emerge in Cuba and the way that people re- really did respond to the revolution. Yeah. Yeah. By opposing right. him very powerfully. Right. And I, I guess yeah. that, that, that chapter, chapter four is the one in which I really got the sense of Cuba as the mirror um, of the Haitian Revolution, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the this metaphor of the mirror and how you chose the yeah. mirror and how that works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was you know titles are always hard mm-hmm. <laughs> hard for me, but I did. And and, and I think one of the first, very first essays I wrote on this project a long time ago, I did use not the title but the the phrase of of Cuba becoming a society that was almost a mirror image of Hades in that in the same moment that. Haiti uh, is becoming Haiti, right? That you have the end of slavery and independence. Mm-hmm. Cuba, Cuba then becomes, you know, one of the a very important uh, slave society in, in the region, along with Brazil, obviously, and the U.S. South. And also, it becomes the one that remains uh, a colony and not independent. So, in those two, in those two regards, it, it becomes the opposite of Haiti in the same moment. And as part of some of the same processes. So, so anyway, so that was the idea that in some sense, these two places that are just miles apart, that, you know, on clear days, people say the, you know, some of the mountains in the east are visible from, uh, from, from Haiti, that these two places are just are undergoing kind of mirrored transformations, the entrenchment of slavery in one, the, 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 end, the destruction of it and the other. So that was that was the idea, and and also just the fact that you know a, the mirror conveys not just that weird sense of um, of inverse, but also the idea that they're looking at one another. And I do think that that Haiti for Cuba always existed as something that it compared itself to, would be compared to, uh, et cetera, et cetera. 
and then in that specific chapter, chapter four, I think there you have the added um, factor that you have these um, the refugees from San Domingue who are arriving in Santiago and producing a, like a little uh, a little Haiti, <laughs> right? There's this little little southern Haiti, this little concentrated zone of, of coffee production and slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in contrast to the society emerging in Haiti at the same time. Yeah, that part was really interesting, and especially the reinforcement of the point of the possibility of re-enslavement for a lot of yeah. the people who had been enslaved in Haiti and then became free, but then the possibility of re-enslavement always lurks. And, right. and um, in the way that Rebecca Scott and Jean right. Edward write about that, but you really make it not just a story of you know, a few individuals or a few families, but a really um, a, a broad process that was right. that was affecting almost everybody there. Yeah, and I think you know it's a theme that uh, that was already there even in chapter three, that uh, the Santo Domingo chapter, mm-hmm. right? Because that's when um, these people who were becoming uh, French citizens could be captured and re-enslaved in Santo Domingo or sent to Cuba, etc. So, it, so it's a theme that recurs throughout. Uh, throughout all the chapters, and and also the other thing is that we tend to think about it in relation to Santiago and the group of of, of migrants and our refugees, right? But mm-hmm. but there's that case that I talk about uh, in late 1802, where the the French officials are allegedly capturing rebels and insurgents and bringing them to Havana, not to, not to Santiago, but to Havana to sell them as uh, as slaves. So it's not just you know, when I started this book, every time I tell people what it's about, they say, oh, so you're writing about the refugees in Santiago. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, they're in the book, but it's actually, you know, it's not about that. And the impact of, 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 of Haiti in Cuba was also a very Havana story. It was, it was, a, it reverberated in Havana differently than in Santiago, but it was, it was a very powerful reverberation there in part because that was the center of the rise of slavery. Right. On the island, yeah. Yeah, and there was the the, the sort of, I mean, one of the things that happens in in the book is that there are all of these tensions between things that do happen and things that don't happen, right? So there's the prohibition of the so-called negros franceses, but but then the arrival of all of these people who were rebels and are being sold as as slaves, right? And so right. Yeah. Um, the, the, the kind of contradictions that you, that you kind of uncover and that shape the whole book are really, really central to understanding how complicated that moment was. And one of the points that I really yeah. like also about the book is how you make the point um, often about what a prolonged struggle it really was. Um, right. And the way it almost, I want to talk about this a little bit later, but it almost, the book almost takes us up into, um, almost into the Cuban Wars of Independence. In fact, someone who I was talking to about this book said, oh, so it's a prequel to her first book, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if you imagined it that way or not. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was in I was in Havana last month, and somebody said, "Oh, so you're doing a trilogy? This is the first piece, and Insurgent Cuba was the last piece, and now you're writing the middle piece." And I hadn't thought about that before. But Are you doing a trilogy? A, I hadn't thought about it. No, I mean that's not my plan. Though mm-hmm. I might that might still change. Yeah. Um. One of the uh, one of the other kind of mirroring effects takes place with foreign policy. 
right? So mm-hmm. you try to, you make the argument that they both, they inspired rebellion, but perhaps not directly. And I'd love to hear you talk more about that, how that dynamic works, but also they didn't overtly support anti-slavery in other places, right? Right. As a matter right. of policy. Yeah. Um, that we know of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. there's always, always that caveat. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've always, uh, in part, you know, I, I the, um, in chapter five, there's a long discussion of this uh, conspiracy in, in Guada in 1806, in which one of the one of the leaders is was born in Saint Domingue, and he claims to have participated in the Haitian Revolution. And so, I had an early earlier article where I wrote a lot about that that piece, and so I became very interested in the question of of that of what you know what does it mean to have someone from from Saint-Domingue having claimed to participate in the Haitian Revolution be leading a, an alleged conspiracy in Cuba. Mm-hmm. And, you know, th- then there's all these, there's debate in the scholarship on the Haitian Revolution and the Haitian state on on whether uh, Haiti supported slave rebellion or conspiracy elsewhere. There's a conspiracy in the island of Trinidad, um, that some people claim uh, Haiti had a had a part in, but again, there's there's no there's no Haitian state documents that would clarify that question necessarily. That would that would either confirm or uh, you know or or rule out that possibility. Mm-hmm. So anyway, but but I also but so so that's an open que- that's, it's an open question. I think there are some people, some historians, who ruled out the possibility of Haitian involvement. Uh, and have insisted that when slaves elsewhere talked about the fact that they were getting Haitian help, whether in the case of Aponte or in the case of Denmark Easy in the U.S., uh, you know, a decade later, they always think that that's just the the enslaved talking and spreading rumors or it's wishful thinking or they've been drinking or what have you, and it's just talk, serious mm-hmm. talk, is what one of them said. And I feel like, in some sense, the... Um, it's too that may be too narrow a reading of of the question that may even if the Haitian state did not send agents to plantations to to you know to rise the slaves up in rebellion, there, the Haitian state was doing other things that could have inspired slaves to act. Right. So mm-hmm. um, so anyway, so I, I feel like our measure of what Haitian inspiration and Haitian involvement is maybe should be a little bit. Uh, should be a little bit broader. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one example, it's a little bit later, so I don't get to it till the epilogue, is the, you know, the 1816 Constitution, where the Haitian uh, Republic and the South says that any any black or brown or red person who arrives in Haiti will be will be Haitian and therefore and therefore free. Uh, you know, that's not promoting rebellion, but that's a foreign policy. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a policy of asylum and refuge and recognition, and uh, that does that people do try to uh, take advantage of, and that the Haitian state protects. So that that's a form of that's a form of projecting an anti-slavery foreign policy that isn't about sending agents to conspire. Right, but does, does that policy evolve a little bit? Because when Napoleon sort of shows up on the scene, um, 
you talk about the way that Christoph starts capturing slave ships bound for Havana and freeing the captives. Right. And so I, I'm wondering if that policy sort of evolves over time. And you, you do make the point that the initial um, policy of not overtly supporting anti-slavery is a practical one right. Um, right. in terms of the politics of the day. And so it's interesting to, to see how that evolves. Yeah. No, I think that's true. I think there's indications of, there's hints of that policy uh, earlier. There are, um, for for example, even before that, when Dessaline uh, becomes head of state in 1804, almost immediately he initiates a policy where people who have left or who have been taken from Saint-Domingue during the revolution, if they want to come back, they will be received. So that's, you know, and those people could be enslaved. It doesn't explicitly say, right? But, um, but in some sense, it's it's a it's a way of trying to make Haitian freedom available to people who aren't in that moment on Haitian soil, right? So that's an, that's an 1805 example. You have examples of of, of Christophe capturing slave ships bound for Havana and bringing the ships to uh, to Haitian coast and freeing the the captives, right? That's another example. So, and then the 1816, you know, the, the explicit article, it's Article 44 of the Constitution, that, that, that is the, you know, that is the, the, the highest expression, I think, of that, of that policy. Mm-hmm. And it's one that sort of, that gets forgotten often in the, the narratives about the Haitian Revolution not being recognized by other states for right. a really long time. But um, this, this question of free soil, which you wrote about in your article... Yeah, um, seems like it's a really important one. Yeah, I think actually, and I think it's really interesting to think about it in this moment in which Dominicans of Haitian descent are being Mm -hmm. nationalized. You think of the Dominican constitution uh, and Dominican law now, it's like the the complete opposite of that of that principle established in the Haitian constitution of 1816. Yeah, that's an interesting you know, connection. Actually. Yeah, I mean, one one is uh, one is incredibly open; the other one is, is, is everything but. So. Yeah. Um, so, so you close with Aponte, and I'm curious to know how you. I want to talk a lot about Aponte because I found this chapter really fascinating, and in some ways very different from the other chapters. But how did you how did you make that decision to close with Aponte? Well, I kind of. I mean, I thought from the start that I would close. Well, no, I wasn't sure when I started the book where I would close, how far into the 19th century I would go. But I knew that Aponte would be a part of it. So, uh, so in those first trips, I was looking for uh, for material on on him and on the on the movement. So, and I think from the from the I think in part from from knowing the story of Aponte and having heard about the you know the portraits of of uh, of Christophe and uh, and Tassan and so on that he had in his room that in his house that you knew I knew that for him the Haitian Revolution was an inspiration right so if you're if one of the questions is what impact does the Haitian Revolution have on Cuba and on Cuban slavery and a subset of that is did it inspire or shape processes of slave rebellion or free people of color rebellion or conspiracy, then Aponte obviously uh, will be a part of the, the answer to that question. So so I knew he would be, he and the, and the movement would be in there. I didn't know how they would be in there, <laughs> exactly. Um, 
And I think I imagined it always as a chapter, but uh, but uh, maybe I didn't imagine it as as long a chapter. <laughs> I think, um, but I, also the fact that so many not so many people, but that a group of scholars have been working on Nepal for the last you know fifteen or so years, also kind of gave me a lot of uh, more material to work with, more questions to grapple with, more interpretations to bounce off of. So I think it just was very. Uh, productive in that way. So the, that chapter, it, it engages obviously the archival record uh, quite a bit, but also Matt Childs' work and Sibylla Fisher and Stefan Palmier and mm-hmm. uh, Jorge Ojeda. So that, in some sense, it's the most historiographical chapter, perhaps, maybe, but it doesn't, it doesn't read overtly that way. But. No, it, it, but it is true that it's um, the one in which you argue most explicitly with scholarship. And I'm yeah. wondering if you can just give us a brief um, sort of account of how where you position yourself in terms of that scholarship. Yeah, well, I would say I would say a couple of things. First, just kind of on a, how do I how do I want to, so in terms of discipline, I feel like there are historians who've worked on Aponte, and there are more there are kind of cultural scholars who've worked on him. Whether you know Stefan Palmier out of anthropology and uh, Sibylla Fisher out of literature, etc. And I feel like uh, the, those two camps didn't always kind of talk to each other, except to, ref- well, in the case of Stéphane Palmier and Matt Childs, to refute each other a little bit. But, but generally, they didn't engage each other um, that deeply, I think. Mm-hmm. And so what, what, but that's not just, not just in terms of like the scholarship and the debates among scholars, but even in how they approach the record. So I think the cultural scholars tended to focus on the trial testimony that dealt with Aponte's missing book. Mm-hmm. And, and the historians tended to focus on the archival record that, fo- that, that, that focused on the, the actual rebellion and the conspiracy and they tended to avoid the, the book in a in a central way. I mean, they talk about it obviously, but not 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 in a really central analytical way. So I so I felt like what I wanted to do was to bridge those. That I believe that because Aponte showed the book to fellow conspirators, because he had hidden it as if he knew it was something subversive. That I did think that the book had had some connection to the anti-slavery movement. And I thought that the book could be, uh, therefore, if I'm interested in the anti-slavery movement, I can't ignore the book, right? So I wanted to kind of restore the book to the historical process and look at both the book and the movement. So that was, so my idea was to kind of bridge them a little bit. And I would say also that there's a, a central question in the historiography uh, in part raised by Stéphane Palmier, who doubted uh, very forcefully in his uh, important chapter on Aponte. And it's, and it's, an, it's an incredibly uh, smart, important piece of work, but he really cast doubt on whether this had been an anti-slavery, anti-pro-independence uh, movement. He cast doubt on whether Aponte had been really the leader. And I think the more that I got into the record, the more absolutely convinced I was that it was anti-slavery, that he was, uh, if not the leader, then one of two leaders, right? Uh, so I felt like, like in the end, I side more with Franco and uh, Child on the fact that this is an anti 
slavery movement, I'm a little less convinced than they are that it's nationalist in the way they say it's nationalist. But at the same time, I deal with some of the the material that Palmier deals with. I really do try to focus on the, the, the images or the descriptions of images in the book. Yeah, it's a fantastic methodological model, I think, for how to deal with a source that you actually didn't see, right? <laughs> and um, yeah, it, it's, yeah, it's really it, it's reading through that is really wonderful because there are so many layers, and I guess this is where Thank now you. it becomes clear that you you know have had a background in in English and literary studies or something because all of those layers come clear in the way that you kind of weave what he said and what the picture might have looked like. And um, I really enjoyed the way you, you take on each, not, not every single one, but the, but the images and, and sort of do some research into, okay, what was this ship and what was the symbolism of it? And how did that? um, Yeah. um, Right. how, How did you, how did you come to that method? I've never really read anything like that before. Well, you know, it's, it's like you read the descriptions of the images, right? So there's 72 images in total. And so what I did was I sat with the trial testimony and I read it really carefully and then I did notes on each image. And then I looked at my notes and I thought, okay, well, what, could, what is this? And some of the things, I just had no idea what they were. So you mm-hmm. start doing uh, research and you start interpreting it the way you would uh, a, a text, really, because, you, you know, the image isn't there. So what you have is essentially a, you know... A, you know, a very difficult, uh, resistant kind of text. So I just started just researching all, you know, different elements. And then, uh, and, and also then what I, what I tried to do is to see if when other people were questioned about the book, try to match up those people's descriptions of an image with a bonde to see, to get a sense of how he might have described the images to other people. So I was trying to kind of get at the approach the each image from as many layers as possible and so again it was one of those things where I didn't set out to do that it just kind of evolved Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, organically and you know and again that this is where like having done all this work came in handy so I was doing that the image where there's the ship of you know and there's the San Lorenzo and and, you know, he says nothing about the San Lorenzo other than identifying it as a San Lorenzo. And nobody asked him about that when he testified. But, you know, so I was like searching through my notes. And and then I came across the fact that some of his fellow conspirators had done service on that ship. But it wasn't in researching the image that I found that. That was research that I had, like when I was doing some other aspect of Abonte, right? So in some sense, it is like calling this, this really kind of, I don't know, dense or, you know, this substantial, I would say, uh, archival um, archival foundation. It's never as substantial as one wants in the end, but the, the, the more substantial, the better, I think. It lets you do more. No, that does, it speaks for casting your, your net rather broadly and just gathering things that you may or may not know what they mean at the moment, but that seems yeah. to fall in place eventually, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so one of the conclusions I, I drew from this book is the extension in space and also time of the Haitian Revolution, right? I mean, Aponte is 1812, which by right. most accounts, the Haitian Revolution is over by then. 
um, but also the you know the way that you expand it into Santo Domingo and into Cuba. Yeah. And so the um, the when the when the movement to end slavery finally does come in Cuba, you you make you you make this point that some of those people they're all connected, and it's and Haiti is still very much in the very concrete memories of these people, and some some of the people lived through those struggles, right? Right. And, um, the the way that it bridges the one and the other, I found um, I found really remarkable. I don't know if that was your intention. Uh, no, <laughs> not at, you know, not re- not really, not 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 at the outset. Again, I think as I mentioned, I didn't know when I was going to end this book. I mm-hmm. thought initially, I thought maybe I would go to. 1868, and that, as I got in the archive, I realized there's just too much, I'll never finish. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I thought I would go to 1848 and, you know, in, in France maybe, or like to go through the Escalera Conspiracy Rebellion in, in Cuba in 1843-44, and even that became too much, and then I just had to finish, and I had so much material that I just decided to end in 1812, but I did want the epilogue to to look forward Um and to, to, to kind of to grasp that the sense of continuing connection between these two places. And so I did it kind of very briefly um, in the epilogue. I wish I could have done more, but at that, at that point I just couldn't. <laughs> I just couldn't. But it makes the point, right? And it, it does really bridge those two, or it did for me in a way that I, I kind of, you know, it was sort of implicit, kind of there, but but really did it in a very concrete fashion. So yeah, and also, I mean, I remember like thinking back to insurging Cuba that in some sense that that specter of Haiti was so used by the by the Spanish state and mm-hmm. and and some of the the pro Spanish. Uh, or the end, I shouldn't say pro-French, and the anti-independence elite in Cuba, that it just became this, like, mantra, it'll be another Haiti, it'll be African, or it'll be Cuban, it'll be Haiti, 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 right? It was this very kind of negative, Mm -hmm. uh, repressive invocation of Haiti. But even doing insurgent Cuba, you would occasionally get glimpses of other kinds of invocations, right? So there was the fact that somebody flew a Haitian flag, or uh, that uh, someone was singing in the countryside verses about Haitian independence, or, you know, I think it was Rafael Ferra, who I, I write about at the first book, a black uh, journalist, uh, who invokes a, a positive image of, uh, of Haiti in one instance, so, or, or maybe even in more than one, I, I can't remember. But So I do think that even in that later period, there are these, these different invocations of, of Haiti, but in either case, Haiti is just is it looms incredibly large uh, for the history of, of of Cuba in the in the nineteenth and, and into the twentieth century. Yeah, so we've taken up a lot of your time, um, and I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts, anything I didn't touch on that you wanted to make sure to be included. No, I think we covered just about uh, just about everything. I think. Um, great. So, uh, do you would you like to tell us what you're working on now or in the future? Uh, well, I haven't quite decided. So, I may go on to do more work on Aponte. I'm thinking of doing a little book on him, but I haven't quite decided. I'm doing a couple of archive trips this summer. I went to Cuba in May. I'm going to Spain in July. Just looking, looking for things 
that I hope will help me decide how much more I have to say about him and his movement and his book than I say here. So that's a possibility, but but I haven't quite decided. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll look forward to whatever emerges from that. Yeah. Or I might do something really general. I might just do a history of Cuba. Maybe, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't decided. Mm -hmm. If you have any ideas, tell me. (laughs) (laughs) No, I've got enough to deal with on my own. (laughs) Right. Um, Well, great. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Sure. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks. Thanks for, thanks for doing this and for doing all the other ones you do. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Hey, bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman, and I hope you can join me next time.